Uh, turn back in our Bibles to the passage that's already been read for us this evening, which you'll find on page 965 if you're using the church Bible and there's enough light above you uh, to find any page. And the passage we're going to look at together this evening is from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 through to the end of the chapter uh, in verse 25. Um, you remember how uh, a tale of two cities begins. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And uh, every report I've had from anyone who has gone shopping over the Christmas period uh, has given the indication that that's how people find Christmas. Uh, most of us do look forward to it as the best of times, but you see on people's faces, at least through Boxing Days, that uh, it, it may in fact have turned out to be the worst of times. Uh, there is reportedly greater depression at this time of year. Uh, women especially who are uh, still probably the majority of Christmas dinner makers and Christmas present wrappers find themselves under great stress, and some of us men are no help whatsoever uh, in the situation, and our words of comfort sound a little hollow as though we were Job's comforters, the, the best of times. Um, and in so many ways, people try to express this. It's meant to be the best of times. And often it turns out, at least uh, for many people, to be laced with the worst of times. And when we go back to the very first Christmas, uh, we're almost tempted to say, so what's new? Because the two big narratives in the four Gospels that describe the experience of those who were most intimately related to the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, from one point of view, it was the best of times, but it also from another point of view for all of them in one way or another, because nobody appears, you will have noticed, in the Christmas narratives whose life is not disrupted by the entry of the Lord Jesus into our world. It is a marvelous time, but one might say the first Christmas was costly, and every Christmas thereafter has proven to be costly. And the three Gospels that tell us about the coming of Jesus, uh, John's Gospel views it as it were, with the, the, the camera angle is looking over the shoulder of God Himself, and the entry of Jesus into the world is told from uh, the camera angle of eternity. In, in Luke's gospel, the, the cameraman is looking over Mary's shoulder, isn't he? And uh, I've often wondered, actually, if Luke at some time had the opportunity to speak to Mary, because there's really no other possible 
original source for what's in the beginning of Luke's gospel than Mary, the mother of our Lord. And then in a very different way, uh, the, the camera angle in Matthew's gospel is over the shoulder of Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. And we get the story of his coming into the world, the disruption it was, yes, for Mary, as this passage indicates to us, but especially the experience of Joseph and all that this meant for him. And we're told, aren't we, in these verses, at least we're given the impression that here is a man uh, at what we call the first Christmas who is preparing for his wedding day. He's already engaged, and as you know, in the, the Old Testament world, uh, that engagement was absolutely sacrosanct. Uh, if you wanted to break an engagement in Jesus' day, you didn't just send the ring back in the post. Uh, you had to divorce the other party. You had to divorce the woman. And this is a situation that's very graphically described here in Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew tells us in this rather quaint phrase, before they came together, he discovered in a way that we're not told that Mary was expecting a baby, and he knew he was not the father. Uh, that expression, before they came together, uh, has, has a little uh, of the element of physical intimacy behind it, but it's a much bigger picture than that. Because these two people, Joseph and Mary, if perhaps Joseph and Mary were roughly of the same generation, then it's possible if they came from the same village originally that they may have played together in the streets. But apart from childhood, and even in childhood, they probably had never spent a single minute together on their own. So before they came together, really does mean before they came together on their own, before they ever had a private conversation, Joseph discovered that Mary was expecting a baby. They're not told whether Mary communicated that to him, or by this time, as Luke tells us, had, had Mary gone to her relative Elizabeth and her husband Zachariah because, not for marriage guidance counsel, but to cover the shame of her pregnancy. Um, clearly, this is a different way of going about getting married than what we are accustomed to Today, what we are told often, if I may say in parenthesis, in some of the uh, Christian guru books about what a happy marriage really is. Um, here was a marriage in which they hadn't spent ten minutes talking together. And it really underlines for us um, and perhaps those of you who are really young may remember this one day. For the rest of you, it may be too late. 
that our view of marriage today, even our Christianized view of marriage, the kind of view that you find often in the Christian books on marriage, actually owes much more to medieval courtly love than it does to biblical principles, or for that matter, to Reformation principles. You know how Martin Luther got married. If I remember rightly, he managed to get 11 nuns out of a monastery, found husbands for 10 of them, and then the eleventh told him that he still had a responsibility, and he could fulfill it himself. So, in Bible times, actually until relatively recently, historically speaking, the way we get married is almost the reverse of how it was done in the ancient days. How do we get married? We fall in love, and therefore we get married right through the 16th into the 17th century, it was the other way around. You got married because marriage is a matter of respect and mutual commitment, and therefore, you fell in love. So, this is the this is the context. It's a very different context from the world of romance and marriage And just in case you think I'm the Christmas Grinch, I got married eventually because I fell in love. Yes, I know all about modern marriage. But this is a very different world, and it's also a very different world for a broken engagement. In today's world, a broken engagement is a sadness and a tragedy, but it no longer carries the kind of shame that it obviously carried in the society in which the young Joseph and the young Mary were looking forward to their nuptials. And this is Joseph's story. Just in case you were wondering, he is the holy night. He is the silent night. The most obvious thing about Joseph is the thing that we usually don't notice, that we do not know one single word that ever came out of his mouth. And yet he turns out to be, as we see uh, in these verses, um, a knight of a man, uh, a noble believer. But although that's true, he actually is not the central focus of this passage. We might think so at first because of the way the story is told, but the more we look at these verses, the more we realize that this camera angle that Matthew is using, looking over Joseph's shoulder to tell the nativity story, is actually not so much focused on Joseph, although we'll come to him. It's actually focused on Jesus. And his chief interest is not so much in Joseph, but in what happens to Joseph because of the central figure. And so, the the whole central section of this passage from verse 18 to verse 23 is focused on the baby's identity. And you see this in different ways. You see it in the titles he's given. You see it in the explanation that's given of the way in which he is going to come into the world. 
And there are two things in particular that highlight this child's identity. The first, of course, is that his conception is supernatural. What is conceived in Mary? This is the reason Joseph does not need to be afraid. It's not because he is terrified of the presence of an angel in his dream. What he doesn't need to be afraid of, what he doesn't need to be ashamed of, is taking Mary to be his wife because the child that has been conceived in her has been conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit so that his conception is supernatural. We, we often say by way of distinction that his birth was perfectly natural. His birth would have been like the birth of any other baby. Yes, different physical circumstances, but like the birth of any other baby. Mary's experience would have been like the experience of any other mother. But what the angel that appears in this dream of Joseph, and if your name is Joseph in the Bible, apparently by instinct you are a dreamer, is that his conception is going to be a supernatural work, and it's emphasized more than once. This is the fruit not of what man has done. This is the fruit of what God has done. His conception is supernatural. And in a way, if you're familiar with that long list of names that precedes this outburst of news about the conception of Jesus, you'll remember how Matthew, in a sense, has very carefully prepared us for this. Because as he's described these different groupings of individuals from the time of Abraham right up to the time of the Lord Jesus, he has, in a sense, unnecessarily but significantly interjected into that list, which is not a full genealogical list. He's interjected into that list a whole series of births that are in many ways unexpected and unusual. He begins with Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, and his first readers and ourselves and the church, we instinctively remember at what stage in Abraham's life and Sarah's life, Isaac was conceived and born. There was something, there was something supernatural about this. Uh, uh, we don't have people in the church who are about 100 years old, but if we did, and then David said, I've got great news, Abraham and Sarah are going to have a baby, well, we'd all be lying on the floor laughing. It's impossible. But what is impossible with man proved to be possible with God. He acts contrary to our expectations. The same is true in uh, verse 3 of the uh, statement that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And you just need to know something about that story to marvel that into the very genealogy of the Lord Jesus, God would put this unexpected 
and uh, almost unmentionable chapter in the Old Testament scriptures. And then as the narrative moves on, it moves on, doesn't it, uh, to Rahab the harlot, and then to Ruth the, the Gentile, the Moabites, and then to the almost unmentionable but mentioned fact that Solomon was the son of David by. And you remember the phrase that he uses? He doesn't even mention her name. By the wife of Uriah, one of David's great generals, whom David strategically, mafia-like, had executed so that he might steal his wife. And as you read on, you, you begin to see that God not only does the unexpected and to, to us, as in the case of Abraham and Sarah, is the impossible, but He even somehow or another weaves His sovereign purposes into the darkness of human sin. And so, in a sense, we are prepared for God to be doing something completely unexpected but you could hardly say that we are prepared for this. Because in this instance, what God is doing goes beyond human ability. And what God is doing goes beyond human activity. Mary is passive in this. What is conceived in her is through the Holy Spirit. And perhaps it therefore shouldn't surprise us that, that what God does here is, it not only goes beyond our ability and puts man to the side, but God does it in the dark. I've often thought that God, God has done the great major things He has done always in the dark. He created the world in the dark. Uh, when the earth was without form and void, and God spoke and then said, let there be light. And uh, He brought about the resurrection in the dark. No human eye. And He brought about the, the incoming of His Son into the world in, in the darkness. As though to say, do you remember these great words that are so helpful to us as Christians? The things that God has revealed belong to us, but there are things that belong exclusively to Him. And we dare not pry, because we cannot understand. We are, we are but uh, limited human beings. And this is the God of the universe. You see how when people begin to moan and complain about this issue of virgin conception and argue about it and say they, they dismiss the Christian faith be, because of this, and um, you, can, you can be sure of one thing, that they are examples of the person the Bible describes in this way. God is not in His thoughts. God is not in His thoughts. If God is able to bring this cosmos into existence out of nothing, which incidentally means no thing, nothing, zilch, 
non-being. If he is able to bring being out of non-being, then it should not surprise us that he has the supernatural power to bring about the conception of a child without the activity of the Father, because he's God. And so what Matthew emphasizes here on the one hand, and we're we are accustomed to this, is the supernatural nature of Jesus' conception. What we sometimes neglect to mention is also the natural dimension of Jesus' conception. Let me put it this way. He was not conceived outside of the womb of Mary. The Holy Spirit is described in the Scriptures in terms of more than one bird, the dove, the eagle, but he's never described as the stark. So this is not the Holy Spirit bringing a preformed embryo and injecting it into the womb of the Virgin Mary. This is the Holy Spirit working in the womb of the Virgin Mary so that Jesus, and this is the, this is the really breathtaking thing when we've grasped the first thing, that this is God in action bringing His Son into the world. That, that's breathtaking, but the, the really breathtaking thing is that when He does it, that Son is bone of her bone and flesh of her flesh. He really does belong to our humanity. He comes out of our humanity. And this is what these passages, these genealogical passages that some of us find frightfully boring and others of us find absolutely fascinating, these genealogies in, in Matthew's gospel and also in Luke's gospel, that's what they emphasize in the two ways they get to Jesus. They're emphasizing Although this is the Son of God coming into the world, He is coming into the world by taking our human nature. It's interesting how the author of Hebrews plays around with the ideas that are present here. On the one hand, tracing Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham, and the other, the revelation coming through the angel of God when he says in Hebrews chapter 2, it isn't the nature of angels that he took, but uh, he took the nature of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Mary and you and me, not a pretend humanity, and interestingly, not a 30-year-old humanity. but a humanity that begins life in the darkness of this young woman's womb, utterly dependent for his life upon her sustenance, tiny, invisible. You, you've seen it, we see it now in all these, ama these amazing uh, technological, technologically produced pictures that we have of uh, the fetus growing in the womb. I saw somewhere the other day that a, I think a new children's hospital somewhere, as you walk into it, it's lined with these tableau of, 
of a child, a fetus, uh, growing in the womb, powerfully moving. And uh, this is so that he would, he would come into our world as, as one of us. And you see, in these two emphases, that, that this has happened because of the ministry of the Spirit. But what the ministry of the Spirit is doing is, as it were, as the Son of God enters into our world, the Holy Spirit is there operating in such a way that the Son, who is Himself God, will assume a true human nature, and not another human nature than our human nature, but a human nature from within our common human nature, from, from this probably teenage girl. It is absolutely staggering to think of it. Lo, he abhors not a virgin's womb, although he built the starry skies. It is absolutely amazing. And of course, it's accomplished in order to solve the intractable dilemma of the human situation. And the intractable dilemma of the human situation is that we are guilty before God, we have turned away from God, we are absent from His presence, we are alienated from Him, we are rebels against Him, and we are His debtors. And all we deserve from His hand is His just judgment and condemnation. And we are the only ones who are responsible to resolve the situation. And not one of us can. Not one single one of us can. So, what is the solution? Well, God Himself provides the solution. This is the message of the gospel, isn't it? We have an intractable problem. We cannot solve it. But we alone are responsible to solve it. But because we cannot solve it, God Himself condescends to solve it in our place, not by brushing aside the problem, but by solving our problem, taking our human nature, wearing it the whole course of His life, offering Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, rising again in order to transform us. And this is the reason we find two names for the Lord in this passage, isn't it? Um, because in Him all of our deepest needs are met. Uh, he is to be called Jesus. That is, that uh, God saves because He will save His people from their sins. That's rather pointed, actually, given the messianic hopes that many people had in those days for a Savior who would come and deliver them from Rome. He will come and He will save His people from their sins. And He'll come to be Emmanuel. That is, God with us. And here's the resolution. Here is the, here is the answer to our deepest needs. This is, the, this is the glory of the incarnation. That He has come to save us from our sins. 
and he has come to be God with us. We who have been alienated from God, who have been, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, without God and without hope in the world. And he comes into the womb of the virgin as and, and this is what Hebrews chapter 2 especially underlines. He is perfectly suited to meet our deepest needs. And these are our deepest needs. To be saved from the power and the guilt of our sin. And to be brought back into the presence of God. He is Jesus who saves these people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Remember how this whole gospel is bookended in that statement, isn't it? It begins with Emmanuel has come into the world in the fulfillment of the prophecy. And it ends with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go into all the world, preach this gospel, baptize, teach, make disciples of all nations, because I am the great name for God in the Old Testament, because I am with you always. I wonder if when you were a child, you, you looked forward to Christmas immensely. It's before the days when you had all the stress and you were carefree and just looking forward to getting the presents and the, the plum pudding and uh, all, all the rest of it. You know what I used to do? Because it was a bit of a downer when you got up on Boxing Day. I used to wrap my presents up again. <laughs> and then I would open them but it was never the same. Because that Christmas is at the end of the day superficial and not lasting. It can't be captured. It can't be rewrapped, even if you are guilty of re-gifting, as David was saying this morning. But Emmanuel, Emmanuel, that's the Christmas that lasts. So, as we, as we look through the, the, the camera angle over Joseph's shoulder, we see that the focus of his attention, the focus of Matthew's attention, and therefore the focus of our attention is on the child's identity. Um, but it's surrounded, isn't it, by Joseph's receptivity. We might even say Joseph's sensitivity. And Matthew also wants to bring this out. Um, personally, I never wanted to be Joseph in the nativity play at school or wherever. It's the idea of standing beside a girl was enough to give me the creeps, if you don't mind me saying so, not because of these beautiful girls that I was invited to stand beside, but because I was just a boy. I don't know what to say or what to do. I'd rather be a shepherd or even a wise man, preferably not a sheep, um, you know. But there's nobody in the Christmas narrative so, so admirable, is there, as Joseph. And for that reason, I think, you know, I think there are maybe like two little moves we need to make when we read this passage. 
The first is to see that Joseph is not the central character. Jesus is the central character. But the second move that we need to make is, I think, um, I think in the Christian tradition, as we look at Joseph, we've, we've just got this tendency to think that uh, God was looking for somebody good enough to look after Jesus. And there's a smidgen of truth in that. But the real truth is this, not that God was looking for somebody to care for his son, but that God had prepared somebody to care for his son. Um, We're not really in this position, but I think we can imagine it. I've often said in the past, before I was old and retired, to congregations I've served, if we're parents, we need to understand our children breathe out, breathe in the atmosphere that we breathe out about the Lord. And it is an atmosphere, and they pick it up. And sometimes as a minister, I've learned about what's going on in homes because of things that children have said. And we understand that, don't we? You know, we hear, we hear children using the foulest language when they're seven years old. What do we say? We say they're just uh, breathing in what their parents have been breathing out. Dear friends, from God's point of view, the same is going to be true about His Son. His Son in our flesh is going to breathe in the atmosphere that Mary and Joseph breathed out. If I can put it in in terms that will connect to, to those of us who have been stuttering our way through the early chapters of Proverbs on Sunday nights, this is the man who's going to sit down with the Lord Jesus and give him those talks in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. These are not going to fall out of the sky into Jesus' head. And so, when we look at it from that point of view, we understand that God is not scouring the world and scratching His head and saying, oh, you know, who will I choose? You know, would He be better with somebody like David Robertson or somebody like Sinclair Ferguson or with Will? Or, you know, what, what, who? No, 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 no. He's prepared the man. And we get these wonderful little hints of this. The angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream, and how does he address him? Son of David. Son of David. Isn't that interesting? If I can put it this way, if at the time of David the Lord was preparing the pathway for Jesus so that he would be the son of David, the ultimate son of David, David's greater son, then he was no less preparing the way for the man who would be Jesus' adopted and adoptive and adopting father, which actually is the significance of the last words here. He called his name Jesus. That's not just, what will we call him, Mary? That's an act of adoption. 
That's an adopting father giving the child the name by which he's going to be known. And so the very fact that he is the son of David is an indication to us that that God has already prepared this man. And there are other beautiful illustrations of this. Uh, For example, you notice uh, when when Joseph hears the news that Mary is is going to have a, a child, remember you remember how it's put. He was uh, well. Various translations. He was a righteous man, or a just man, and he wasn't. He wasn't willing to expose her to public disgrace. Now that language, that language hides. Um, I mean, our English language hides a, a couple of really interesting statements. The first is, I don't know what you think of when you hear that somebody is righteous. My guess is most of us. I, have you ever dis- described somebody? And you know, a, a marvelous. Have you ever said about a really marvelous Christian? He's righteous, maybe occasionally. But usually that rings bells of self-righteous, and it has a metallic ring to it, doesn't it? Um, He's a righteous person, means he's right, but that's about the best you can say about him. But you see, the the word that's used here is is the word that that would be used for somebody who had been justified. And even that doesn't do it justice, because righteousness in the Old Testament. And remember, this man really belongs to the Old Testament times. Righteousness, yes, indeed, describes somebody who is in a right relationship with God, but describes somebody who's in a right relationship with God. It's a word that emerges from the giving of God's covenant. Abraham believed God, and because of that, he was counted as a righteous person, and listen to this, he was the friend of God. That's what it's saying about uh, Joseph. That's the kind of man he was. He was a man who lived in intimate fellowship with God. And fascinatingly, although, although the law you know, this kind of situation, a man's, a man's uh, engaged to a woman and the woman falls pregnant and uh, the man just, well, he's a, I'm going to marry her anyway and we'll, we'll have the child and all the rest of it. No, 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 no. What this woman has done theoretically is committed adultery, stolen Joseph's life, and is actually guilty of losing her own life because she's killed his life. And Joseph knows that. And because he's somebody who is obedient to the law of God, no matter how much it may pain him personally and emotionally, he knows he has got, he's really got, he's got no other choice in this situation. This is not a will I divorce her or will I not a divorce her case. This is a situation in which everyone knows the only thing the man can and should do is divorce her. To do anything else would be an abomination and a shame beyond words. And yet, 
we're told that he didn't want to, and it's variously translated, didn't want to, to put her to open shame. Actually, the, the Greek verb that's used here um, is, is the verb from which we get the word paradigm. You know, those of you who have learned foreign languages, the first thing, well, in my day, the first thing you did was learn the paradigms. If it was Latin, this is how the verbs work. Or if it's Greek, etc. Or if it's Hebrew. Or if it's French. I won't insult either our native Greeks or our fluent French speakers. But you understand, these are the these are the examples, and, and that's what the text is saying. He, he wasn't willing to make, to make her a, an example of shame. And so, he was, he was going to do what he knew he ought to do, but he was seeking a way in which he might do this with the quintessence of mercy and kindness and sensitivity to a woman he at the time believed had fallen. That's the kind of man God prepared uh, to be the guardian of his son. And as the story goes on, we're, we're told that he was obedient when the angel of the Lord explained to him what had really happened and told him to go ahead and listen, to go ahead no matter what people said. And these little hints in the Gospels that people knew. So that for the rest of his life, there would just be that little. I find this very moving because I know people who have been through situations where I know what happens to them is going to be a cloud over their li- the rest of their lives. It will never go away. The whisperings will never go away. No matter what the quality of their lives are, the whisperings will never go away. And it's very significant that he chooses to take that shame in order for Jesus to be born within his family. And All of these statements are indications to us that God had already prepared this man. There's there's something else I think we we ought to notice, Um, and we ought to notice it because I think it's rather wonderful, Um, and I hope you'll find it wonderful as well. These big features of Joseph's life, um, what, what what Old Testament prophet do we think about at Christmas time? Isaiah. And if you really know Isaiah, you know Isaiah's prophecy is punctuated by a whole series of prophecies about the coming of Jesus. It begins in chapter 7 with the prophecy that he'll be, he'll be conceived in a, in a virgin's womb. In chapter 9, that, that uh, he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. In chapter 11, he's the one who's filled with the Spirit and characterized by righteousness. And then there are more later on in chapter 42 and 49 and 50 
and uh, 52 and 53 and 61. You know what's really interesting? Is that the characteristics of the promised Savior that we find in these chapters of Isaiah, the big features of his life, are actually all found in this little description of Joseph. The Savior who would come, uh, he would come from the stump of Jesse. Now, beloved, here, here is the heir of the throne of David, and he's a carpenter. This is the stump of Jesse. And then we're told that he'll be filled with the Spirit, and his life will be characterized by the fact that he is righteous. And then, then we're told this, that when he sees a bruised reed, he doesn't break it. When he sees a dimly burning wick, he doesn't snuff it out. He'll be characterized by the, the deepest, gentlest sensitivity to the fragile, to the exposed, to the endangered. And... Uh, it's all true here of Joseph, isn't it? He's just exactly this kind of man. And then supremely. You remember that passage in Isaiah where the servant of the Lord says, he wakens me up every morning and I do what he says. That's exactly what happens here. Joseph woke up and he did what the Lord said. And then perhaps most moving of all, is that rather than see this woman put to shame, he takes her shame upon himself, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement to bring us peace was upon him. With his stripes we, we are healed. It's it's, it's moving beyond words. This is why I say God was not looking for a man who would be suitable to be the guardian of his son. God, just as God the Spirit had been working in Mary's life, so God the Spirit had been working in Joseph's life to prepare him, this silent man, to be the guardian of his beloved son. So as you look through this uh, camera angle, at the, the narrative of the nativity in Matthew's gospel, you do see what, a, what a, a wonderful, glorious event the incarnation is, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. Just think about that event in uh, the last battle, C.S. Lewis's book, you know, when uh, they all find themselves in the stable and they discover that the, the stable is, it seems to be bigger on the inside than it looked from the outside. And the only people who don't see that are the dwarfs. The, the, dwarfs, the dwarfs find it intolerable. Uh, this is why it's so strange, isn't it, that people who hate the idea of knowing, trusting, and loving God seem to always want to be in his heaven. They found him so distasteful. And then uh, 
You remember, isn't it, Lucy says, this is one of the very few occasions in the Narnia Chronicles where obvious Christian truth is introduced into the story itself. When she says, you know, in our world too, there was once something in a stable that was bigger than the whole world. And that's what's, that's what's the marvel, the wonder of the incarnation. And isn't it true that uh, Joseph here is such a, an illustration of what it means? If I can put it this way, to be entrusted in this world with the name and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense… He's such a… He who was not willing to make Mary a paradigm of shame becomes for us like the last person until we've got to John the Baptist who belongs to the old covenant era of the prophets and the royal family who shows us what it means truly to be a Christian. And here, in a sense, is what is perhaps a deeply encouraging truth that we learn from this passage, that Joseph was a total nobody. Imagine living, imagine living through all of this and never saying a word. Not that he was completely silent. You, you, you've noticed in Luke chapter 2, when Mary is steaming mad with Jesus because they've lost him for a couple of days, that it's Mary who speaks? Not even then. Incidentally, while I'm talking about it, there are marriage guidance books that would tell you that's wrong. That should never happen in a marriage. And you want to say, well, it happened in Jesus' family so sucks to you. You're imagining what marriage is supposed to be like when all conditions of men and women who are able are also able to be married. Don't, you know, dull people. You would never marry them. You don't, you, don't have, you don't have any more right to be married than the dullest person you know. Don't we have such screwy ideas about this? And so, among other things, there is a window here into the diversity of marriage. But my point is that we don't know a single word he said. We do not know a single word he said. But if you don't admire what God did in this man with all your heart you're probably spiritually brain-dead or in the process of becoming it. You want to be like this man, this nobody. So why would God use a nobody? If you were God, you would have been looking among the rabbis. Or perhaps as the wise men were doing in a king's palace. But that's not God's way. 
He chooses the weak things, the poor things, the insignificant things. Not many mighty are called, not many noble. Why? Because what God is really after in this man's life, in our lives, is that he gets all the glory. We get the Christmas, so we get all the joy. But he gets all the glory. And the sheer mystery of it to me is this, that in the end, we enjoy the fact that he gets all the glory. And that's what the message of Christmas really is. I think that's maybe why Martin Luther said, you know, God made the world out of nothing, and he'll not make anything of you until you realize you are also nothing. He loves to use us who are nothings so that all the glory may be His, so that in this sense He may, he may make us as He made Joseph so like His Son that He knows He can entrust us in this world with his son's glory. That's a great, that's what makes it the best of times, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for these passages that we, some of us know them by heart. Uh, some of us have reenacted them when we were children. We, we've, we cannot remember a day, can't remember a Christmas in which we didn't know about this dream that Joseph had. But we thank you that there is always light in your word and that you want us to bring out of it not only things that are new, but things that are old because our memories are so poor, our affections are so dull. We constantly need to be reminded of your truth and our affections to be recalibrated by the sheer wonder of the gospel. And so we pray this night as we, as we prepare for private and public and personal and family occasions, that in the midst of it, the sheer wonder of what God has wrought may dawn afresh upon our souls and all that we enjoy in this visible world will taste better because we enjoy the truth and the light and the glory of that invisible world that you have so filled with your grace and glory. So bless us, we pray, our families, friends who do not know you, with whom we have contact, family members who may not yet trust you. You have entrusted the glory of your Son to us. We pray that you would make us like Joseph and like Mary in order that his name may be better known and trusted. We pray this for his sake. Amen.